Hey everybody! Welcome to Gay Space Communism. A I'm weird gay. shit. Uh, I'm I'm space. We got Corey and here too. I you. guess. I guess. Yeah. I guess that makes me communist. <laughs> All right. Nice. We did it. Like objectively, I am probably more <laughs> communist than Corey. Not to say yeah, Corey is not so. a proper leftist, because of course she is. <laughs> but uh, I think if we were like going through the spectrum of leftness, I'm probably the radicalist one. I would. I would agree with that. Yeah, I'm of the well, vermin supreme move, so, you know, I get weird with it. Fellas, is it gay to wear a boot on your head? Yes, and I oh, love sweet. that about him. <laughs> it really depends on what kind of boot you're talking about. The thing is, mm. is it gay questions? 100% of the time, the answer is yes, and that's a good thing. I, I mean, <laughs> I've said this before, and I will say it again. There, sexuality being a spectrum, there is no point in saying no homo, because literally everything is some. Yeah, yep. everything's a little. Everything's at least some homo. But also, every single time, like, a sexuality insecure heterosexual guy asks if something is gay that's, like, obviously not gay, it does become gay from then on. It's kind of like a, like, reverse imperialism where every time they try to say they can't do things because they don't want to be like us the gays uh, actually we the gays just become more powerful <laughs> anyway hello welcome to gay space communism hi we're actually going to talk about star trek mostly i don't know if that's clear from the <laughs> opening sequence but we definitely this is definitely a star trek podcast and it's a leftist star trek podcast yes that's what yes. that's i'm reading that off the card here and it seems it says that so um i'm paul byron I'm Rachel Kahn. I'm Corey Archibald. And we, among others, on the NSFW, you know, wonks. the wonks part. That that yes. one, not the one where you, you can't look at it at meeting. work either. We have, the, okay. This sorry, is Rachel really brand the shit. Me, the producer for the wonks media empire. And also, you know, Jew, as is required of me by uh, both Jewish and United States law. So, hi. Uh, the umbrella co-op is Not Safe Media Network, but then the show itself is Not Safe for Wonks. And uh, that's because when we were planning this out, it didn't occur to us that both of those would become extremely popular and then get confused with each other. We kind of thought just one of them was going to work. <laughs> so here we are. So you can look forward to us talking every week mm -hmm. with various members of the Not Safe Media crew and other experts in the field of, I don't know, whatever it is we're talking about. It's a lot of stuff. Because oh, yeah. uh, Star Trek's big. That's the point, right? Yeah, yeah. Lots of people love it. I know off the top of my head, uh, Adrian Hampton of The Promised Land is a cool game that we're affiliated with. He's going to come on and do an episode. We have various people from across the like political punditry spectrum. I know we have talked with Light of Gold of Current Affairs and obviously we have a lot of different politicians who love Star Trek and want to make that real life too. I think Lauren Ashcraft said she wanted to do an episode with us. Um, and then one of these days, we're going to like try and bully Corey into getting AOC. I don't know how it's going to go, but we're going to try. I'll do my best. Mm -hmm. Anyone who loves Star Trek also knows the power of bullying. It's intense. You can get people to do basically whatever. I mean, think about how I used to dress. <laughs> think about how you dress now, Paul. Yeah, impeccably. As a result of both. Yeah, Paul is a modern dandy. I, I like to think that I bring a sartorial attention to things, yes. Yeah, yeah. Sartorial you know. sentience. This sounds like the kind of thing I would have made, like, my Reddit username in 2010 when I was trying to be really serious and cool. Uh, and where I thought being serious and being taken seriously is what cool is. Which was, of course, just my youth and naivete talking. Anyway, Star Trek. They have some really bad fashion. Well, it's fantastic too. It's just so many, they just it's good, so many bad. sweaters. Yeah. God, the sweaters! I love Picard sweaters too. Uh, but that's not really what I love about Star Trek. 
for me, the thing I love about Star Trek is it really paints this much more optimistic vision of the future than we usually see in media, especially science fiction, uh, especially like speculative stuff, where there's this sort of what if we as a species collectively decided actually we are better and stronger when we work together and put other people's needs on par with our own and really united under that sort of idea of you know do no harm and help where you can and you know be communist and be gay as shit right because that's that's another sort of aspect of star trek as a franchise they have always been really willing and i would say even well, enthusiastic about sort of pushing the envelope and trying to to sort of push what is sort of allowed to be depicted or what should or should not be seen as just a normal thing that happens, you know? Like, uh, I mean, even in the original series, right? Like having a woman for a Yaoman, they made some jokes about it, but like at the time that was sincerely like pushing the cutting edge of feminism. You know, this idea that women could just work. Women could be intellectually as competent as men was like a huge deal. So. Okay. Oh, but on the other hand, because it is the 1960s, one of the yeoman's job is to give the captain a back rub sometimes. I mean, yeah, they didn't get it 100% right by any means, but they really, you could tell they were always trying, and that, I think, counts for something. And I think that there's an extent to which people are kind of limited by what they've already seen, you know? Like, the limits of our imagination are set by the things we have already seen and assimilated, and what we can extrapolate from that. Well, and in reality, it's a television program. It is made by mm -hmm. the television it is i mean like it, it has to obey those strictures and in approaching and unpacking the show we will also give an eye to that sort of disparity of treatment where like oh wait no you should have definitely been way over this by then but it would not it, and that effect that it has in sort of making sure we do not miss the forest for those trees like that is to say we're gonna make fun of the makeup and stuff but the rest of it will be fun a lot of the times they, they, there are a lot of concessions made to production reality yeah, for sure. For sure. Paul, what do you like about Star Trek? Um, it, I mean, yeah, it's a world where what the Navy does is go around and find cool shit and like take a picture of mm -hmm. it and then write a dumb term paper. Like every, like, it is nerds in space. It is, if you, mili <laughs> if you militarized the academy. Because what they have oh, are man. giant warships, but every time they go do a cool adventure, they all have to write a term paper about busting a hole in the universe and then meeting their past selves or whatever. Is Admiral Jean-Luc Picard technically a philosopher king? Kind of. I mean, right? That is it. Yeah, he's a <laughs> military mastermind. He is also a lawyer extraordinaire. He is he did French. Uh, I mean, <laughs> what you, French, but with, a, but with a British accent. So roll you know, with that. I, we just accept things as they are sometimes. You know, people, they grow up all kinds of places. You know, it was an ancestral home. I don't know if you necessarily okay, maybe grew up there. Maybe they shipped him off to boarding school in the UK. I mean, who knows? Maybe the French retook England. Agincourt 2.0, somewhere in the middle there. I'm into it, frankly. I think somebody should probably take over the UK because they clearly cannot handle their shit lately. Hey, well, don't worry. Someone will be there. Someone will, someone will figure, figure that out soon. I'm sure they'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, because things have gone so well with that strategy so far. It, it always bothered me that people would fixate on the fact that Picard speaks with an English accent, but his home, his ancestral home is in France. Like, nobody's complaining about the fact that he doesn't speak French or that, you know, Worf isn't speaking Klingon all the time. Or, you know, it's all of these people should be speaking. Of course, we have the universal translator, but like a, a lot of the people from different parts of the world should be speaking with different accents ostensibly but they don't and they just for some reason they fixate on the the picard thing you know 
what? Actually, I think this is a great jumping off point. I think what happened is the Universal Translator is racist and was programmed to try and do accents by somebody who like hadn't really encountered a lot of accents. Who, uh, you know, in the way that <laughs> hey, like, when, it's we, a me. when we create, yeah, when we when we create. You know, technology, we create that technology within the limits of our own understanding and imagination, right? So if somebody is racist who writes the algorithm, we see racist things come out of it, right? And we know this is true because we already see this in life. We've already seen examples of this happening in the computer era. Uh, And so what actually happened, I have decided, and what is now canon because I have the power to do this, is that the person who first programmed the Universal Translator, uh, which... Hoshi. <laughs> Would have been Hoshi, yeah. Uh, was actually really bad at accents and kind of racist. And so Hoshi <laughs> just sort of decided that, uh, you know, all these well, white people look alike and sound alike. <laughs> and therefore, who cares? English is the is now the universal default. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Not to, not to come off as too sort of deterministic, but we are talking about the same Hoshi who becomes empress of the Terran yes. Empire on the exactly. back of the time-shifted ship that crosses over after the Tholian web incident. Yep. Yeah, we know she's exactly. got it in her. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. She's got it in her. So just to let the audience know, I, I'm here because I have too much of my headspace occupied with the facts of this case. So uh, I will I will be surfing as often a subject matter expert. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, right. I mean, we have all seen all of it now at this point, I believe. Uh, yeah, Corey, I yeah. know you're going back through for another run. I mean, I've, I've watched most of the series multiple times, but I'm I'm doing a chronological watch right now. So I started with Enterprise. I'm in the middle of uh, original series at the moment. So Well, that's actually nice. kind of awesome because that is how I, uh, my plan here was to talk a little about our all of the canon, the, all of the television yeah. and movie canon, because there's 10 million pages of novel, and I'm not reading all the romance. Yeah, no, about I'm not. No, Data oh, did Yard, I get to which about is... why I like Star Trek? I'm sorry, I had to put you off a second ago. <laughs> oh no, please, oh, yeah. yes, I'm, I'm sorry. Do it. Yeah. Well, all I was gonna say is that Rachel stole my answers. No, I'm just kidding. No, I. Yeah. What I like spaceships I are cool Star and Trek. stuff. No, what I love about Star Trek is that it shows us what the future that we could have that we deserve yeah you know obviously there's it's not a perfect future there's still problems within the star trek universe and we're going to talk about a lot of those things but it is the the trajectory that we could choose to be on and i often compare as many trek fans do trek to expanse and I, i feel like trek is the the future we deserve and the expanse is the future we're likely to get yeah it's funny because I just started, I have read every single book of The Expanse because I'm that kind of nerd. But uh, yes, I do include like the novellas and stuff. I've read all of them, all of them, all of them. Yeah. And also I just started uh, watching the TV series uh, now that the yeah. final season is out. And so it's funny you mentioned that because it's like so on the front of my mind right now. I've been watching it like, this is what would actually happen though. We're so fucked. Yeah. <laughs> we're so well, we fucked. Totally are. We're, like, we, we're, we're totally, we totally are. Corporations are going to rule the stars. There's no question. Oh God. I can't think of a less worthy leader. I know those branded <laughs> track suits for every ship. We're like, oh, shit, he's got us. Like, whoever yeah, embroiders all the patches. Man. Like, oh, I do all the corporate branding for all the ships and the uh, and the, and the stations. I design the yep. so like, cool, yep. great. Put you in the airlock, bud. No, it's a good design. They look cool, but, like, it's weird. Yeah, yeah it is- and that, that job also clearly exists in the Star Trek universe. Like, some of their uniforms are really fucking tight, actually. Whoever moved <laughs> that zipper from the front to the back in TNG, though, that's weird, because now someone has to help you get dressed, which is a weird officer <laughs> thing. <laughs> That's where the yeomen come in. <laughs> hey. 
Oh, no. Hey. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I think at that uh, point, they just had, like, pullovers, right? Like... Yeah, I uh, think well, so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, you have it. I have it. I'm tell, I have it replicated around my body every morning as I'm stepping out of the sonic shower. <laughs> How the fudge would a sonic shower work? I've wondered that forever. That's what I've always wondered. Oh, it just blast all the stuff off of you. There was one episode of Voyager where, I, I think it was Voyager, where Bellana goes in and she's been like doing something that's gotten her really dirty and you could see like the dirt just kind of lifting off of her and I'm just like, how does that not puncture your eardrums? I don't understand. Right? How this works. I have so many questions. I have questions. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is yeah. the central conceit of the program, which is it's magic if we say it is. Look, I put a science word in front of a normal word, so now it does more than the word you thought it was, and we don't have to explain how. But, like, I do assume, <laughs> and perhaps I am, you know, making assumptions too vast for this, but my assumption is that the writers themselves, like, we're basing this off of something, right? Because that's how a lot of the tech in Star Trek works is like, you know, they will sort of extrapolate on existing science, sometimes to horrific and completely indigestible uh, extents, such as the key conceit for how Star Trek's uh, discovery gets around. Which yeah. is just some amazing, like, salt lamp licking woo bullshit that uh, <laughs> I had to just literally grit my teeth and accept. But also sometimes it's based around things that are like, you know, maybe a little, a little more, a little less ridiculous. I don't know, like the idea that you can manipulate light and create matter from energy, right? Because it's all kind of the same thing. And if you, you know, figure out alchemically how to do that, then you could just make things, you know, like 3D printing for matter itself. That's cool idea what's if you get like a stem cell enough stem cells in a uh small enough printer head you can make a turkey sandwich you just go like deep you go deeper right and that's the yeah yeah yeah. well and i think actually in one of the series this might be uh enterprise actually they um talk about how they don't have like the full bone like replicators yet but they do have like protein resequencers and stuff like that right yeah Well, well, that show is all about frontiers. Like, oh, what if instead of more technology like TNG, they had less technology? Yeah, that was a weird time in American culture. Just like, you know, unlike now, the very normal time in American culture. (laughs) Yeah, the most normal time. I do want to speak out for Sonic Showers. It is really just, it vibrate the, for that one. Vibrations would take stuff off your skin, right? You you could yeah, but how would they not like, also take off the skin? See, and now that's well, I mean, also your skin. <laughs> well, how do you not take all your skin off with a loofah? You, this little knob. Like, one would assume this. One would assume there's a knob for this sort of yeah, okay, that's fair, to that's it. Fair. Like, like we're talking loofah. about the difference between a loofah and a belt sander. I follow. <laughs> Right, like you'd find someone like maybe you just like it on two but Worf hops in there and gets it on five and comes out like three pounds of weird crazy skin on later like the dirt like because they've got to serve an entire species worth of uh, a, an entire ship's worth of species like whoever's on the ship okay well, how the fuck does your skin work oh so I have to bathe in ammonia all right fuck so we'll figure out then you know what how about we just shake all this stuff off you're like yeah that, that's fine and like it yeah. covers everybody yeah there's like whole species that literally just can't breathe the same air or whatever but like sure yeah y'all can have sex like love will find a way frankly 
Yeah. <laughs> Love will find a way. Well, I mean, as long as we're talking about impossible technology in Trek, the big one that always jumps out to me is the transporter. And, you know, you've probably heard him say a couple times in the series, they talk about the Heisenberg compensator is acting up or something's not right. And that's all yeah. based Perfect. around, what is it? I think it's the Heisenberg, some Heisenberg principle. We should get an expert on to explain that. And I, I watched a whole like documentary once about how, how the, the reason why we'll never actually have transporters and to which I say, boo give me transporters but still I, I love the idea that they just like you said they just put a, a sciencey word in front of it like oh we it can't work because of the heisenberg uncertainty principle that's what it is yeah so we're just gonna have a heisenberg compensator and now it works congratulations magic yeah i love that about it right the science is magic aspect of it is very good and cool and i like that in discovery yeah. they're kind of really pointedly bringing that back like i'm thinking there's a scene yeah. with tilly in particular where like they accomplish something that's like this really big impressive thing with this like hyper super dense asteroid thing and she just goes it's math people and it's like the cutest little thing ever and also it's like exactly the kind of like joy and exploration and play that like makes me love trying yeah. to begin with yeah oh and there's another part where she goes like, this is so fucking cool and then she gets embarrassed and you know Stamets yeah. goes no you're right it is fucking cool <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely I love Tilly so much she is she's the, glorious. She's the fan. Well, she's a way better fan analog and like audience analog than say Wesley Crusher. Yeah, man. Hey Wesley I like Wesley. I look, I don't dislike Wesley. Tilly is a better <laughs> Wesley. Yeah, well, Tilly's I... also like 10 years older better... than Wesley was when the show started. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, I mean, okay, fine. Look, I don't dislike Wesley. He's a very fine man. <laughs> He'll make a great officer if he didn't turn into some being made of energy and zap himself off the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like, all right. When you let's put do, it that let's, way. Let's run the canon. All right. We're going to talk about the whole, whole batch of television bullshit that's come out in all the movies. So we're going to start. Why? Well, we're going to start at the origin of human humanoids themselves, because this kind of explains a little bit of this. We have got TNG's The Chase, which explains that oh, that's why everyone's an actor. That's why none of them have tentacles mm -hmm. and all of them have basically the same face it's just a makeup dealie it is a yeah. wonderful like just beautiful the episode's quite good but it's a beautiful con scene it is. kind of just yep we got a hand wave all of this they've all got ears and their genitals are on the front and in the pants area and everyone like everyone's got boobs <laughs> right, right. or not You're like okay well and this was this was the one where they met like a founder right no or something that's... that looked like a founder it was the same actress and very yeah, similar yeah. makeup but but it wasn't a founder I choose to believe it was the founders or like what would have later become the founders because I choose to believe it. Okay. Uh, look, un until we find <laughs> I'm headcanoning this. novels against it, then you're good. And I don't, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm I just, just for, for my own satisfaction. Um, but they do explain in it that the reason that, you know, these species are all kind of the same is because they went and deliberately seeded the galaxy uh, with their DNA, which yeah. is like not completely beyond sort of the realm of some hypotheses for how like life here happened right because one of them is that you know the components of life would have been brought here by like a meteor that would have just sort of like fuel injected life onto the planet and then wow holy shit life is happening and that it's a stretch but it's it's a nice sort of romantic stretch based on something you know sufficiently plausible that i'm like yeah okay we can we can roll with that one this one's not ridiculous Right. So between here and there, we'll pass over the variety of historical anomalies generated by various violations of the Temporal Prime Directive throughout the series. <laughs> For a moment, we'll get to time travel at a, in time. We'll get to uh, we'll skip, but we'll skip ahead to about 
now where we should be getting right on the heels of World War Three and the post-atomic horror that will be the res- that will then result in Star Trek First Contact 2063, the greatest grandfather paradox in the history of a thing we're supposed to take seriously. Where uh-huh. Jordy LaForge and everyone go to go meet Zep from Cochrane, inventor of the warp drive. The sort of fundamental invention that makes the Star Trek universe possible. There's a bunch between here and there, but let's face it. Well, I mean, like that this is like the fun like the thing that makes interstellar travel and our interact, and then the Vulcans come, and that is the first steps towards the Federation. At which point we get Enterprise because the movies we're talk about in a little bit because they're way uneven and all mostly dumb. Enterprise, <laughs> uh, Star Trek tries to show its its frontier spirit, having you know taken gotten too much technology during the TNG era, so it's Scott Bakula. It is easily far and away the most cringe of any of the Star Trek series. It's it's pretty cringe. It's pretty cringe. Yeah. Far and away the most cringe. Like Archer so clearly has a death wish throughout the entire series. Like he continues to try to get himself killed repeatedly. I would too if I was Scott Bakula. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Oh, no. And I mean, Dr. Phlox is the best doctor. He's by a, I, a decent yeah. amount. If just Phlox. because it's like, oh, you're like I, a weird, mad science doctor that's like just strapping alien plants onto motherfuckers. You don't have... <laughs> you know, there's no there's no hypo spread. Nah, we're cutting people up with saws. Yeah. All right. I love Frontier medicine. I love it. I also think actually that is more plausible to me in a lot of ways. Well, I mean, you could think of Phlox as like the father of space medicine, really, because he was he was one of the people that really pioneered like a lot of the yeah. treatment techniques that, that yeah, like if he had know, ten were... pharmaceutical labs. Well, yeah, he... if he had access to the same equipment that Crusher and, and Bashir did, then he would have been leaps and bounds above above them. I think it was just the sheer like uh, creativity and and sort of resourcefulness of his his medical solutions yeah, that definitely yeah. make him one of the best doctors. Well, and it would take somebody like that to create the technology that you know we see later on, where they just have these like giant databases of like DNA basically, and they can just sort of extrapolate from that what it's doing you know it it would take somebody Mm -hmm. who had that kind of really comprehensive understanding you know not just of like one species not just of even one biome but like all of these completely different physiologies that developed on different planets it's cool shit but also to still be bound by such a strict code of ethics so so that they don't turn into like a nazi doctor ah see also mirror universe flocks yes who is like very clearly (laughs) mengala as shit but like the least character change from anyone in the show which is Which is amazing. I love that. I love that so much that like his character could have, I think, honestly gone either way. Like, I think that both Phloxes in either universe kind of could have just gone either way. And I I think that's kind of an interesting thing because they show that he has different sort of moral approaches to things. Like, Phlox was the introduction of polyamory to the show. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, he's poly as hell. They're species, like dozens of wives all over the galaxy. I mean, they live hundreds of years, so it's like a lot more feasible of a lifestyle in terms of intergalactic long-distance marriages with lots of children, but nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying, right? Like, it's just a cool thing. It's, it's They show that there are different approaches to morality based on, like, values, right? And that, like, it, it's sort of a bit of insight into what morality is and how it works 
through him, which is cool. And one of the things I really like about him. Like, but they don't do it in that sort of over the top, like amoral sense that they often do, where they try to say like, you know, any other morality than specifically mine is completely without any moral compass, right? They say like, no, like you can be good and you can have different values and having different values can create sort of different behavioral outputs. In that spirit, Hoshi, we've already mentioned, but like not having a universal translator, which is like a beautiful conceit that is largely for the television audience. So all the actors are speaking English or the language that it is translated into, but it was, I mean, it was acted in acted in English, performed in English rather. Uh, right. So, right. but like watching Hoshi have to like dither around with it and like figure, like I don't know, it's a bunch of gibberish. I'm trying to figure it out, but I only have ten thousand books about this, and these people are from somewhere the fuck else. Is like yeah, adds yeah. attention. You don't. It's really hard. I mean, it's complicated the hell are you supposed to do good question send them a bunch of yeah, prime number yeah. patterns you start with that you hope it works yeah absolutely but I, I, that's the thing right i think that's the coolest thing about enterprise just as a series within the canon is that it really did sort of provide that sort of prequel insight because i mean this was during the audience yeah. and everybody was doing prequels in the audience before they just said fuck it we're just gonna remake the same six franchises over and over again and you're gonna fucking like it you little pig and uh <laughs> and they were right <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, I I am not the first to say we are but cows. <laughs> and and I think that that was really a case of kind of getting it right. You know, the way that they showed that conflict of like understanding and mastery compared to these just extraordinary unknowns. Uh, and I also think, honestly, given the, the contexts culturally, right, because this was during the Audis, just after 9-11, mm-hmm. Islamophobia was at a fever pitch. Not that it's gotten particularly better, but it was much more aggressive and open then in some ways. And, you know, sort of changing your approach to the other in that way, or sort of breaking down like that such differences exist and that they're morally neutral in the form of like language and communication. And like, look, we we're just trying to understand each other um, was really an interesting and useful reaction to those cultural contexts of like really, really heightened xenophobia and nationalism. Another thing that was so interesting about Enterprise is the way it shows the development of the Vulcan culture and society and just the massive transformation that happens even when the within mm-hmm. the confines of a few seasons of that show. And then you see how it pays off later. I mean, you know, we start off Enterprise and and mind melds are, are a thing that are like hidden and a source of shame and only a few people do them and people get really sick from them. And then by the time you get to the original series, Spock is like yeah. mind melding with a robot. I mean, Banging right, them off right. every week, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Why don't we wait for him to wake up? No, I got to find out now. Like it was so clearly uh, like an allegory for AIDS, you know, like just very obviously that was intended to be like an analog to AIDS. Really? I didn't catch any thematic weirdness at all in that entire series. They were never hammering what? home a very specific moral message from No, they were just but also, so, that that show is that that series yeah. particularly is so heavy handed with its with its metaphor writing. They're so bad at it. Yeah, they don't well, know how I mean, to tuck it is... away. They don't like and the show's never been subtle. No, but we appreciate it for, for the foundation that it laid for the canon and, and you know, the the inklings of, of the technology that we would later come to rely on in other series and it, it's you have to admire it and appreciate it for that and kind of forgive the terrible writing yeah yeah 
Yeah. Well, and also, like, as shitty as our culture is right now, it actually was in a lot of ways meaningfully worse at that point. So the fact that they came back, right, and they were the first sort of return to Star Trek in, like, six or seven years, uh, as I think probably kind of a reaction to this weird turn towards fascism we had made. Digging through the cultural toolbox going, wait, do we have anything for this? Fuck, everyone. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. shows are about assholes now. Yeah, well, and I mean, that I think by itself, you know, is A, they probably didn't have nearly as much money because nobody wanted to talk about like hopeful, optimistic futures right after the war in Iraq started and never fucking ended. And we hadn't figured out as a culture how to like push through that moment yet. So I I think I, I have a lot more forgiveness for Enterprise, even though it was like objectively one of the worst series, because like I remember what things were like at that point. You know, and it was everywhere. It wasn't just like just Star Trek. But I think we do have to all agree Enterprise, miles and miles away, has the best theme song. (laughs) I hate you. I'm sorry. It's horns or nothing. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is a short-lived episode zero. We made it halfway through. <laughs> if you had to choose your personal hell, and in this personal hell, you're trapped in an elevator and one song is playing, and it's not even the whole song, actually, would it be the Star Trek Enterprise Faint of the Heart chorus situation on repeat forever? Or would it be the Star Trek oh, original series oh, uh, operatic singing rendition? Yeah. Forever. <laughs> oh, the singing. Oh, it's it's co- operatic all all day. Oh, yeah. oh, <laughs> the funniest part oh, about nice. that terrible theme song was that they somehow took a, an awful theme song from the first two seasons and then they made it worse. I, like you didn't think it was possible. It's amazing. How did they do it? Magic. How did they like? I they, <laughs> to imagine the fucking hubris. The fucking right, we gotta, hubris we gotta... to take a song that bad and be right, like, oh, I'm going to fix it. And then you just keep the vocals, which were the reason the song was bad. <laughs> that was some executive making a decision for everybody else from the top <laughs> down. And it is exactly why we have to destroy capitalism, right. because this is what capitalism makes. So I want to leave. I want to leave off Enterprise with one last final moment that I could just remember and speaks to the entirety of the show's ethos, which is Scott Bakula basically looking directly at cameras and says the words, "Well, if there was some rule or directive <laughs> to follow, some kind of primary thing, <laughs> yeah, some kind of overriding directive I could follow, but I there isn't. So I'm gonna do this and like." I did. You could have just, oh, so much of the writing and so much of it really is just needlessly setting up dunks that have already happened that were already great. Okay. But like, imagine you're a writer trying to get by during the period of time where really the only thing like execs were paying for was reality TV and you're competing against Honey Boo Boo for money. Like, and you have to convince people who were that kind of stupid to pay you. <laughs> like, no, no, I hear, I hear hear you but we now are reached the point in the in the in the timeline where we're going to talk about not not TOS because something happens right before TOS that manages to not have to do any of that shit yeah right discovery pulls this off i fucking love discovery
Discovery's only crime is that it does not explain how Harry Mudd went from the weird gruff dude that he is in Discovery to the gay space pirate that he shows up as as in TOS. And that is it. And I, but I'm waiting for a movie. There'll be a movie. The I'm answer, sure. my friends, is he got a lot of money. That's what happened. Is he became extremely, extremely rich. He was not yet. He was becoming the, you know, rich person psychopath he would need to be to later enable his, you know, more flamboyant tastes. But you have to get, get the money first. space prostitution, I think. Yeah, is, um... well, space sex yeah. trafficking, really, but... Yeah, I'm sorry, you're right, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, that's like, literally the only thing that changed is he just finally found a grift lucrative enough to allow him to be, you know, the sex-peddling Liberace he was. Let all that chest hair poof right out of the collar, boys. Fluff it out. <laughs> I am pro chest hair. Yeah, I'm pro body lot. hair. I'm pro <laughs> back hair, even. Well, have I got the man for you. But that being said, no, we're talking <laughs> about Discovery. We're talking about the transition of Star Trek from dumb episodic bullshit because TNG, it comes out of the, like TNG and Voyager and DS9 are all to come in our discussion. But it is just 45 episodes of 45 minute long. And there's some of them that are like, I don't know. We just write something for this week. My favorite is when they find excuses to just like recreate Shakespeare in space. And yeah. they they never do it allegorically either. They literally no, like, will this planet, like, they all are Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, later on, they when they give themselves the holodeck to play with, they were able to get a lot weirder uh, with it in that sense. Oh, my God. But, like... And we're going to talk about their love of <laughs> Jane Austen holo novels because yes. what is wrong with you? Yeah, just, like, that, that whole situation, really. What is... are the costume departments do we have access to here at CBS? Exactly. Exactly. It's it's so transparently about that every time. It's always like, oh, y'all just ran out of money this week, didn't you? But Discovery, right? It's prestige television Trek. They've got the budget. They've got the arc. They still do Planet of the Week. They gave us a time loop episode, like my favorite kind of episode, you know? Like, Hell yeah. Oh, the same 30 minutes keep happening over and over. Those are fun. You know what it is? You know what it fucking is? And the same thing has happened with a lot of different series in the last, like, 10 years or so where they got reboots that were actually good. <laughs> and you know what it is? Is millennials started making them. Yep. Also, there's like basically no straight white dudes on Discovery. Yeah, that's part of what makes it interesting. And you know why that's happening? It's because millennials are making it now. <laughs> and we have different values culturally because we're the generation that was actually raised with immediate social access to all of the cultures of humanity, right? Because we were the ones who were born into the internet. And I think that is why we are also seeing sort of globally right now this like sort of Star Trek heyday because they've got like three shows on the air right now at the same time, which is like the most they've ever had. Uh, and it's it's directly because of that. I think, you know, we have an unprecedented insight into the other by way of the internet. And now that's coming into our storytelling. And Star Trek is a perfect venue for that. I think, wasn't there a time where Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise all overlapped? Or was it TNG, Voyager, and, and Deep Space Nine? Uh, I think TNG just barely had ended. Okay. If I'm remembering, well, I know correctly. that it over it overlapped with Deep Space Nine just a little bit, but maybe not with, with Voyager. Voyager. But maybe not with Voyager. Yeah, I know Voyager and Deep Space Nine had direct crossover. Yeah, they so. both overlap with one another, but DS Nine is the linkage. Yeah, 
Okay. Yeah. So there's no TNG while there's Voyager, but there is DS9 during both. But I will say, so yeah. you made a comment a minute ago, Paul, about how these other series were very episodic. Deep Space Nine was actually the first one to really break the, the episodic formula, to, to do more. I'm actually yes. right in the middle of that part right now. It's so good. Yeah, they made one where that last season where like, no, we're going to make a five and a half hour long movie. Yeah. Fuck yes, okay. we did. Okay. And that was also, I mean, that laid the groundwork for what Prestige TV was going to be. And mm-hmm. that was coming out at the same time as like 24, which was one of the earlier TV shows that sort of ushered in Prestige TV later. Yeah. So that's nice. That's cool. It's good that they'd stop trying to do like strictly, you know, Monster of the Week stuff and started really expanding and exploring more into long-term arcs is great. I'm here for it. And now we have Disco! Yeah, but you were talking about Discovery. Yeah. Which, I mean, what is the epitome of that, right? Like, they've got their casting weight. Their casting has gone away over the roof. Like, there is, Mm -hmm. there's no straight white dude in the show because I'm going to call Saru (laughs) queer-coded. Saru is extremely queer-coded. That's not even a... Saru is absolutely... Saru is a drag queen community elder. (laughs) And that is exactly, like, everyone who is actually queer knows exactly who I mean. (laughs) And that is who Saru is. And if you are queer, you just intuitively recognize he's queer. Obviously. Also, he's not, like, he's not a white guy anyway because he runs around in those, like, horseshoes and, like, has weird long That's just because the way his feet are shaped. Yeah, but no, that's what I'm saying. It's like they made him, like, very, very not a white guy. Like, I I don't think it's just that they queer-coded him. Like, they put this guy in heels. Like, he's running around in heels. (laughs) I don't know for sure. And that, I mean, and the physicality that he maintains with that, with the arm swing is very... Oh, my God. And all the Kelpian actors do it. Like, everyone, all the Kelpians do do that it's so good yeah like all oh, right your arm your arm makes you do that yeah running makes it look like that for you yeah because your body's different so you would move differently it's cool stuff and that's what happens when you start like actually like paying people who know what they're talking about to do things which is very easy to do when you're talking about millennials the most highly educated generation in human history and also none of us are fucking employed it's it's so very clearly of us and i love that about it and i love the way that they just really leaned into that best spirit of Trek. You know, of like, no, this is about pushing the boundaries of what we can imagine and what we can imagine better to be. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they, spoiler alert for people who are still watching it, although this is like season three stuff that you should know by now. The fact that they push it into this future where, you know, they were on their heels and, you know, this the Federation and the spirit of the Federation were no longer this dominant force. And they were trying to sort of win it back to that place of like, no, we have to take care of each other. I don't think it's a coincidence that that's where the story went. No, I agree. Because I think that is where a lot of us are right now. We're asking ourselves as a generation who's, you know, coming into our 40s and in our 30s, and it's like our time to inherit the earth, and this is what it looks like. And I think a lot of us are asking, how the fuck do we get there? Which is why we're making this show. Mm Mm-hmm. And we'll end up talking a lot about Discovery because it is the most recent and probably so and the most I mean, ultimately, it will be the most right because it will be the most aligned with our with contemporary values. But it Mm -hmm. still I mean, even the the way it deals with artificial life is still weird. Mm -hmm. I really didn't like the way that the second season villain ran because they never tried to talk to it. Yes. Yeah. Everyone decided it was the bad guy and it was, I agree. It was, but there was no, like none of the, of the usual Star Trek. Hey, let's ask why it's being an asshole and figure out if we can address that somehow, or is it just kind of an asshole? And at which point, yeah, then shoot it with a laser. I mean, but it is a, and I, yeah, I'm not super clear on why their solution worked. That being said, 
I loved it. It's fine. I very much enjoyed it. I'm not mad. They actually did their time travel in a way that didn't fuck with me too badly. So I'm good with that happened. Yeah, they sent them forward instead, which is better. And also, I mean, yeah, it's fine. It was fine. The Red Angel arc was fine. And did a great job setting up, as you said, that sort of, oh, wait, what? Do, how do you rebuild a crippled and sort of decaying institution? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that's sort of like our current existential threat is global warming, right? And it's like, okay, we have to figure out how the fuck to dis- I'm sorry. disassemble this, uh, this now. Is the first, this is the first I'm hearing of this. Is this something? Right, right. Uh, and we are right here. We are on the precipice. Frankly, I think we already lost. I think we are going to have to just accept that climate change is happening and we're not going to stop it at this point. We can stop making it actively worse, comma, everybody over the age of 50. We can stop making it actively worse. Did you know that? We could stop. But other than that, we have to just start really talking instead of about how we're going to stop this train, which we clearly can't stop, and instead start talking about how we are going to rebuild after. Because I don't think we can stop the collapse itself at this point. Well, this is one of the fatal flaws. I, I, I was thinking about this as the... So, like, Star Trek represents Gene Roddenberry saying, what if there was a war so horrible, everyone acted right for a little while, for a while, ever, yeah, right? That- like, what if there was a war so... And, like, and I don't think that's even possible. Is it quite... I mean, we can talk more about this. It'll be a, a theme to explore ongoing, but, right? Is there a war so horrible that we all stop warring? No, and you can't kill your way to peace. You just can't. It's not possible to kill your way to peace. That's a scary thing to realize when the other person is actively trying to kill you. Yeah. How do you defuse that bomb where there is a person who sincerely would rather see you dead and you can't kill them? Because at the end of the day, if you do kill them, everybody who loves them is going to want you dead even more. And that's it. That is reality. That's how human beings actually work. And we have romanticized killing each other for the last, you know, 600 years of history with like actively portraying it in the media that way is something that's romantic and good and entertaining uh and actually like maybe we should be doing better than this maybe the time is or maybe the strategy now is to actually change our approach and make our methods reflect our values too is that somehow do you think wrapped up in the fact that for some bizarre reason i mean i haven't seen discovery do this yet but for some bizarre reason every trek series ends up doing a nazi thing yeah. Uh, Discovery definitely does this. They do mirror universe. Well, like, it's okay, not, yeah. It is. The, yeah. Like, but no, I mean like the overt Nazi, like like they go back and relive part of World War II like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you get Roswell in DS9, but I don't think, no, they don't actually go, no, they don't go back to regular Earth or any, like they don't actually make overtures of the 20th century really at all in Discovery. And I don't think they're ever going to at this point, except for periodically someone loves a song from the 60s for no reason. Yeah, that whole thing annoys me. I hate, because that shit's so anachronistic. Like, how many people actually run around quoting Plato other than me specifically, the turbo nerd? <laughs> like, that's not like a thing that people would just know. Well, I'm sorry, it's a ship full of turbo nerds. I guess that's that. true, though. That is fair. They have always like, been Every one of those people has a graduate yeah. degree in something. And also astrophysics. That's a good to, point. Also. You're right. Even even Tom Paris, the inveterate gambler, has an encyclopedic knowledge of cars and also flying spaceships at faster than light speeds. Well, yeah, he just understands locomotion, period, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool shit. And I get why, like, why you're saying that. And I think you're right, actually. I think 
that makes sense and i should it's perhaps, at least part of it uh, yeah yeah because like every time you do something cool on a star trek ship you have to go write a paper about like i look forward to reading your report your report is a graduate paper about how you broke the laws of physics three times and <laughs> then violated a bunch of intercultural norms and then made love to someone's face whole but you think it might be you hope it's their mouth but you're not super it could have you're not you don't know you really don't you know, know. That's the kirk it was an the orifice kirk and says, they were willing the kirk policies <laughs> actually do dictate that you uh use a dental dam at all times <laughs> that being said we're talking about the make outness the make outness weirdest environment for star trek which is the late the the one the only the original the three seasons that ran concurrently alongside the flying nun a show about a woman who was so small her hat would take her to where she needed to be yes kirk Spock. Boy, Bones. Howdy. Yeah. Oh, boy. It's a beautiful thing. He makes a wonderful show about being in the Navy, but in space and with science. And it becomes this horrifying monster that we love so dearly. But yeah. 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 Well, well um, first of all, let me just pull over and say that Spock is absolutely, of all of them, the most important Jewish icon. Because all Vulcans, of course, are Jewish. Spock in particular is the most Jewish of the Vulcans. And he's perfect. And I love him. And his relationship with cats is everything. <laughs> and I like that they did a nod to it in Disco even, where he was interacting with a cat. Well, as a Georgian, I just do want to thank DeForest Kelly for being the greatest export of Decatur, Georgia until Outcast, let's say. Uh, <laughs> um, you know? Yeah. Solid choice. Uh, the original series is, it's, it's bad. It's a dream. It's bad. It's a fever dream is what yeah, it is. There is a lot of crazy yeah. in the original series. And that's even accounting for the fact that it's a product of its time. It's still a lot of cringe. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I also, I, I got to give it credit for its context. Nobody had ever even tried to do that before. That was unique. Exactly. And so that's where you have to forgive. Yeah. Episode two is about a teenage boy with psychic powers that tries to sexually coerce one of the yeomen. Yeah. Yes. And they like have Kirk try and talk to him. He's like, hey, we don't slap women on the ass. <laughs> Stop it. Yeah. And yeah. that's it. And it's like, this kid has massive horrifying mind powers. You need to, this is a real problem. This is you incel like, territory. Yeah, you should probably handle that yeoman. <laughs> Yeah, like this is. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, we should cut this kid in a force field, fucking stun his ass. I don't know, but whoa. There was also an episode uh, where I guess like Kirk got split into his aggressive yep. and passive sides. Yep. Ah, uh, yeah. And his aggressive side, like straight up sexually assaults the Yaman, uh -huh. and like traumatizes her. Like she's clearly like traumatized by it emotionally, as you can tell from her behavior the rest of the episode towards him. And then at the end of the episode, they're just like, "Oh, I guess you need a little bit of your evil side, though, because otherwise you're ineffective." And it's like, "Yowza! Yeah. That is uh, that is some steaming that's, horse we shit, all need boys." To have a little bit of sexual assault. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like we all got to be just a little bit of a predator no you can be none a predator actually that's allowed you can be cunning without being a predator even you don't have to do that it was night the 60s they hadn't but yeah i mean yeah that's the thing is it is the 60s right like consent this, hadn't this is... been invented i'm sorry i well I right didn't... but this is like literally like the rise of judith butler was happening like shortly after this you know like this was the beginning upswell 
of this, you know, nascent movement of feminism, which hadn't even become really properly intersectional yet, which hadn't really fully come to understand, like, gender identity as something distinct from the body yet. This very beginning of sort of third wave feminism where, as a direct result of second wave feminism and women, you know, white women anyway, getting more access to, you know, these mechanisms of intellectualism and of the academy and being taken more seriously as thinkers, right? That was all happening at the same time. Right. So, like, they were trying their best to keep up, I think, and to introduce those ideas where they could. At the end of the day, it was still made by a bunch of white dudes because that's how TV worked. Yeah. So they got it wrong, you know? But I I think they do deserve, like, some credit for trying. Yeah. I would just say that, like, on, you know, they had the presence of mind to be very clear about racism in the show. I mean, Mm -hmm. even even moments where Kirk says, leave your bigotry off the bridge. It doesn't belong here. And, you know, just being very, very clear about the fact that people of color belong in all these spaces. But they just told, like, but, but they got women running around and those little those little mini dresses and being oogled at and just loads and loads of sexism and it's not as if feminism was you know not invented it was it was there it was present it was part of society it was just so like they get it but it was new but not a total pass but like think about what the what the aims of feminism were at that point right because feminism itself came in waves feminism itself is a reaction to you know the things we've learned from past waves of feminism i would argue that we're actually on like a fourth wave thing right now uh that like our generation is starting to build and that is at this point conspicuously absent from discovery which is a thing you had mentioned before and i'm going to kind of bring back up now in contrast like tv cannot go further than the outer bounds of discourse and and it's easier for people like us who like live on the leading edge of discourse, who are leading discourse, to lose sight of what is even intelligible to other people. Uh, but I, I think it's important, especially when we are evaluating shows like of their time that are screwing it up, to remember that. You know, to remember that like these people had never even been exposed to these ideas. These were new ideas. You have to trick CBS Westinghouse into showing it also, right? There's a guy in a suit who's like, hey, the bank said, no, we can't be that not racist right now. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. And also, like, when you are still trying to learn these things and change yourself and grow as a person, you're going to screw it up sometimes while you're learning, right? So that's why we have, like, the episodes that are very obviously meta messages for, you know, racism and, you know, trying to diffuse racial tensions to some extent. Uh, There's also, like, an entire episode where Kirk teaches an android to be racist against Spock. Yeah. And it's the same sort of, like, shallow understanding that we still see happening in modern media and modern discourse. It's like, the rah-rah feminism of Wonder Woman that itself, you know, is ultimately an appeal to fascism and imperialism and colonialism, right? But, like, people aren't there yet. They don't understand it to that depth yet. And I think that's, like, important to weigh, if that makes sense. Including now, including with, like, people who are making media right now. Yeah. Well, I think this is actually a great time to talk about that gradient in a very, very sort of granular way, because the animated series, which happened directly after the TOS, but had most of the same actors and is basically the same show, but with that weird Swedish animation style or Norwegian or whatever that, that weird company yeah, that does yeah. that. Like, and that that is another three seasons of the show, which is basically the same 
kind of episode, it, but it has more yeah. fun aliens. There, uh, Hura actually does more shit and takes over the ship more often because no actual white man's feelings are hurt, which I mean, right, like a third in the command, she should have taken over the ship a lot. But ultimately, it doesn't come up that much in TOS because people can't handle it. But as a cartoon, heck yeah, we're ready to go. But very yeah, least, yeah. that that sharp, that gradient is in, in very clear, like that they are pushing that boundary even as the show is falling mm-hmm. off in terms of production popularity. You still have them pushing that boundary in terms of the cartoon because it's almost all the same actors are on it. I think they just didn't get uh, Walter Kane. Was Lucille Ball still producing the animated series? Wait, Lucille Ball produced the original series? She showed up with a bunch of money when CBS was mad. Yeah, yeah. she saved it. Lu- Lucille Ball saved That's Star Trek. cool as heck. Yeah. Well, and Lucille Ball is a great example of like a, you know, leading third wave feminist, yeah. right? She was on the tip of that I'm going to need you to say a little more about that for us. Yeah. Well, I mean, just consider her in context, right? Like she was a woman who was running shows, mm-hmm. you know, and that oh, at sure. the time her, yeah. is like, what the fuck's happening here? You know? And I mean, in her shows, like she showed women at work. She showed women being the center of the story, you know, and that at the time was pretty radical. Uh, and so it's it's cool to me to hear that she was also deeply involved in Star Trek and not very surprising to me because like, of course she was. That was always kind of her message. And I mean, I have no idea how she was with racism. I assume she was kind of racist because that's just the time, you know? And people don't know what they don't know, but... She married Desi Arnaz. She can't... It's it's difficult to be that racist, at least. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, can't speak to that. I actually don't know. I don't know, but let's, let's... You know what? Let's pass through that having not I done mean, our yeah, I would say that's, like, probably roughly equivalent to you know today's modern like interracial pairings i suppose somebody who's like identifiably other yeah i don't know man I, but, but you know what i'm sure there's an entire yeah. podcast about how racist lucille ball <laughs> may or may not have been let's assume it's not that much and move forward you know and i mean if, if i find out she did a bunch of racist shit of course that's people do the things we contain multitudes right you can be good at one thing about it other things and i think we're sort of talking about that and around that uh here with the original series but that's maybe the big thing to take away from it you know is like things can be both good and bad they can both succeed and fail depending on like which goals you're talking about in a given moment and i think creating something with that spirit is important and i think the original series for all of the things it got wrong deserves to be acknowledged as getting the ball rolling yeah, you made the point exactly that I, I was wanted to make. Is of course we're we're going to. It's inevitable that we're going to judge something from our current state of values, and it's fair to assess something how it performed in within the values of the time. And we can we can acknowledge that it's a product of the time, but acknowledge that they're still problematic. But at the same time, appreciate the fact that without the original series, we would not have the entire world of Star Trek that we have to enjoy today. And for that alone, it deserves its place. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, the alternative is that everything would have just been Star Wars. And, like, Star Wars is great. I don't have a problem with Star Wars, but, like, they're not the same, you know? Anyway, so that that covers the original series. I guess after that... That gets us through Kirk era, which apparently holds yeah. massive it holds massive historical significance for the entire rest of the show because it's fun to talk about the first one because uh, all yeah, of them happened yeah. thirty or forty years. All of them happened in the nineties. Now we're like we're moved to late. I'm sorry, eighty nine, which is TNG. Here yeah, we are. yeah. 
But I mean, I think that's, you know, there was a long gap where there was no Star Trek. It took a while for Star Trek to build that cult following such that people really would like show up for it and they could put the kind of money they needed to into it. Because that show had CGI, like it was an expensive show. Well, and I mean, also this speaks to that uh, Star Trek actually creates fan culture and the uh, specifically the women that like Star Trek create fandom fan culture slash fiction all of that conventions all of that is birthed in the intervening 30 years by women who are like what if we drew pictures of spock and kirk with no shirt on some more and everyone's like yeah that's pretty good let's do it you know and then like Um, and from thence and like like the exploration of the space the show creates for viewers right yeah yeah that is what makes the fandom a thing yeah and um actually this is a dear friend of mine her name's nancy knight uh, and she was one of the people that sort of helped raise me a little bit. And she also was one of the people who originally like created Dragon Con. And oh, wow. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and she's great. She's really cool. I see her around in the neighborhood sometimes because I ended up moving like back where I grew up after I had a kid. And it's so funny because like knowing her and seeing where all of these things have come from since then, there's like these very obvious through lines because she, when I met her, was the director of and I think might still be the director of this art house in Stone Mountain, um, which is, you know, known for birthing me and Donald Glover. <laughs> and that's about it. Uh, and lots and lots of Confederate bullshit. Uh, so, you know, woo. Yeah. And, you know, there she was, you know, this very, very liberal woman smack dab in the middle of a town that literally sits in the shadow of the Confederate generals, like uh, running this little liberal theater and doing like educational programs for the neighborhood kids which included like really like reasonable prices and teaching like art and music and like performance to all of these neighborhood kids who were by and large very black because it's a black neighborhood which is even weirder to just be sitting in the shadow of the confederate generals yep yeah right and i i think it it does a really good job talking about nancy who we should absolutely try to get on the show at some point encapsulating who those people were that were the cutting edge of the stuff that was coming back in the 90s you know these people who were reaching back into the arts to try and find a way to articulate like queerness and otherness and trying to like sort of heal some of these wounds from these things they had seen growing up of you know the Jim Crow era or of the racial equality movement of the 60s right and these like really like intense moments that I think ultimately shaped them and so it's cool I think it I think that those people sort of came into power in a way similar to how millennials are currently coming into power because these were like the people sort of on the line between like boomers and x who kind of got lost and it makes sense to me that they would reach back into sort of nerddom and like other histories than, you know, just like the classics, which are entirely like old white dudes. I don't know if any of that makes sense. I think I'm synthesizing that I want to do with this series is I want to talk about how this connects to real world culture and the people who made it and who it's for, you know, and like, I, I want to contextualize these things in the human and really show how we should approach them in this sort of spirit of openness and assuming good faith. Because I think we have a lot of that missing in sort of our modern approaches to like 
media criticism yeah. and how we criticize other people even. Absolutely. And so I, I want to give people credit for trying again. Anyway, in the 90s, <laughs> there was this <laughs> return <laughs> to that <laughs> as a direct response to, you know, the Reagan era, right? Uh, when things became much more austere uh, and where... You know, we saw this, like, reacquisition of the world by capitalism and, you know, the Soviet Union fell and there was no longer, like, a truly, like, world power, powerful communist socialist force to balance out American capitalism, Western capitalism. And I think it was kind of clever to bring Star Trek back in response to that, actually. Well, I mean, you're you're talking about my era because I'm a late Gen X mm-hmm. on the cusp of being a millennial myself. So, like, we, they kind of call us yeah. exennials. And I was I was in Berlin when the wall fell. You know, definitely. Like, I I didn't get into Trek when I was in high school in the '90s, but when I did start getting right. into Trek, it really resonated with me deeply. And I think for all the reasons you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. People are sort of looking for an alternative. And for me at the time, I was in elementary school, you know, sort of in that K-12 range while Star Trek was coming out. And I remember I was, I would just watch it with my dad whenever Star Trek was on. Because my dad, shockingly, this, you know, weird Jewish kid who ended up being a doctor at 23 because he went to some weird, like, nerd kid school instead of going to a regular college, uh, he was a nerd who also liked Star Trek. (laughs) And Shocker. Yeah, can you believe this? That this, you know, weird Poindexter loved Star Trek. Uh, And so, you know, for me, that was like my bonding time with my dad. Like, I would just go cuddle with him and we would watch Star Trek. And he would like crack jokes about like uh, Worf or whatever. And honestly, in a meaningful way, he would, you know, draw moral lessons from it and sort of show me like how these things related to our world you know Mm. and also he's a psychiatrist so he would like pathologize all of the characters and explain to me in detail who had which personality disorders (laughs) um which definitely didn't shape me as a person or make me a weirdo (laughs) and um i don't know i think it'll always hold a special place in my heart for that one you know because it it, for me was a foundation of my ethics you know Mm. We cannot build what we cannot imagine, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And these stories were just essential to, like, my sort of moral lexicon. Because we weren't religious. Because I am a Holocaust descendant. uh, And my family, shockingly, stopped being religious after a huge number of Jews were just killed for existing. And in place of that, you know, we had sort of these mythologies of like Star Trek or Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Charmed uh, was another one my dad really liked. And I don't know, like I I think now I watch like Discovery with my daughter and have very intentionally been kind of using it in the same way. You know, whenever those moral questions are, you know, at the forefront of the story, I'll point it out to her and I'll say like, what do you think about this? You know, and like it's it's a chance to teach as well. Mm -hmm. And I like that it's there for that. And also really fun times in the hall. I kind of miss weird holodeck shenanigans. That's noticeably absent from Discovery. I mean, you know what they do in there. They fuck. You know what Riker does in there, right? (laughs) Can you imagine being the like poor ensign who has to go in and mop that shit up afterwards? 
So I am really glad that we have actually started recording this after all of the most recent batches of CBS stuff has finished because Lower Decks thank has this joke and I'm very thankful because this is the show also next to the timeline so we'll pivot right into it. They do it once and throw it away because I don't think CBS is going to try and let them do a bunch of sex jokes all the time but they are doing the thing and actually doing it quite well that I never really thought Star Trek could do which is be funny. Like Star yes. Trek will sometimes give you a comedy of errors and there will sometimes be an ironic outcome or a thing where someone is gloating or sm or is smiling at a thing but almost any time there is a joke in the in the sort like you see oh the writers are writing a joke clang <laughs> and it is agony i actually think star trek can be very funny but it's very subtle well again that's the comedy of errors kind of stuff that yeah. is like where they're like oh look you've done it you've set up a situation where these characters are having a misunderstanding not oh you've written a joke I see. They're very you, good th at there's irony. There's a very diff big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Very good at irony. Them. Very bad at punchlines. And Lower Decks does an amazing job of that. I am actually, I'm very impressed with them being able to write this this thing into a funny way. And it's yeah. it's just Rick and Morty. <laughs> it is, but it's on T.O. It is on just Rick and Morty in a Star Trek suit. And I, I, don't get me wrong. Like, I think Rick and Morty is a really funny show. I think Lower Decks is a very funny show. For me personally, it's a flavor I've already had. And I am, you know, an insufferable, constantly miserable, novelty-seeking creature. So for me, I'm just like, this is jokes. I think you got to come back at it, though. There's a class analysis inside of Lower Decks, which is, is not yes. present anywhere else because it is about the schmoes that sweep. Everyone yes, you yes. pass in the corridor doing the walk and talk that's like looking at a pad. They're doing some, And like there are a few episodes peppered through the series where it's like, oh, let's find out what these four people do. These four bit players do while we're filming another episode with everyone else. We get the B director to come in and do these people in the set right. on the off days because everyone's in the Jane Austen costume. So we're <laughs> off in this set. And uh, so we can fill so we can double up filming and skip next week well and like again the realities of production but also it's fun to see them tell the stories but like a series that is devoted to oh right some asshole runs around and like sweeps everything up and makes sure like the computer does a bunch of stuff but not all the stuff apparently because you do need to ship a thousand people to support picard's massive waving ego hint <laughs> we'll be talking about picard very shortly <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that the Lower Decks offers that at very least. It, is, it brings a new angle to it. If not just because, because you're right, it is just Justin Roiland. It's that comedy, but. Yeah, I, and that's fine. Like, if you love that flavor, you love that flavor. I'm just very easily, like, bored. And that's no one else's fault. And actually, it is a source of constant misery for me. So, really, I'm not uh, in any capacity trying to make it sound like it's cool that I no, don't no, find it no. funny. Because <laughs> it's not. But. <laughs> It, it need not be funny to, uh, but I think there is still something to be found in there. Yeah, totally, for that, totally. For that Absolutely. approach. Absolutely. Like, oh, all right. Everyone I meet has at least two pips. What the fuck is up with that? Yeah. Well, and I, I think that kind of similarly to the animated series, you know, back in the day, they're kind of using that less serious format to tackle more serious things in a way that's interesting and cool. And I, I think, Paul, you will absolutely know what I mean when I say this. The really, really useful thing about comedy that is kind of unique to comedy is you can talk about things in a way that's very disarming uh, without, you know, feeling laborious. Right? Like, if you can trick somebody into thinking about something because you made it silly, if you can sort of use clowning to get this idea into somebody's head, you can actually reach people that you might not otherwise reach. And honestly, if we can, I should try to get Vermin for an episode with us, because I bet he watches Star Trek. And I think that is that is the thing that both of the animated series have 
going for them, right? Like you can get into things that are maybe too painful for a live action show or too serious for a live action show and just push them to the point of absurdity. And in that capacity, I think the the format works really well for them. And I like that about it. I do. And I like the characters, um, even if they are kind of just like Rick and Morty in a Star Trek skin suit. <laughs> yeah. No, it very yeah. much has that too. It very much has the competent, incompetent balance. Yes. And honestly, I do relate to, um. oh gosh, what's her name? The sort of lead woman who's the Rick, basically. Ensign Mariner. So Ensign Mariner is sort of the Rick in the show. And honestly, I kind of relate to her because, you know, among other things, it's revealed that she's like the captain's daughter uh, and sort of is directly under her mother's command. And they sort of they lean into that in a way that I think is really interesting because it sort of captures what it is to be a fail son uh, and why she's a fail son, because she kind of hates the system of power itself. And I certainly relate to that as a person who was raised by, you know, a lawyer and a child genius physician. Turns out you get some weird pressures on you when your parents are people who are, you know, excellent or whatever uh, to be excellent. And when the system itself is so clearly rigged, there's this very immediate sort of absurdity to it of like, I don't want to participate in this thing that I know is fake because I know it's fake. And so in that capacity, I really relate to her. What about y'all? I haven't watched Lower Decks yet, so I don't have an opinion. Yeah, That's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, they really tried. Gene never wanted this show to be funny, right? Like, he did not. He wanted there to be some, like, a, a couple laughs maybe here and there, like an ending where someone gets their just desserts and everyone looks at it and everyone sort of winks at the camera about it. But, like, sort of the closing jabs between Spock and uh, Bones and Kirk. But it was never supposed to be a comedy show. So they got the far enough yeah. to be like, yeah, let us do it, please. And they're like, you know what? Actually, you're right. This is fucking, some of this is hilarious and needs to be amused. Like, we can make this amusing. Like, them repairing the replicator that's technically just uh, red dwarf right like that is the, the premise of red dwarf one of my favorite shows that was ever made which is yeah i mean if you all haven't seen this it's a british like doctor who grade set based show where it's like all physical but they do high concept sci-fi shit with the technician second class so he cleaned the food dispenser tubes <laughs> but he's the only one that survived for all of humanity so all of humanity's been dead for millions of years and then he's brought out of stasis with a cat man and a hologram and then a robot and they go do high concept sci-fi shit for with a com- sentient computer for yeah, what, like yeah. it's like nine or ten seasons now it's it's really it, it well i mean diff- leave it to yeah. the brits to do class analysis well right Right. Yeah. They are way more class conscious than we are at all. <laughs> like, but I mean, I think the Star Trek set definitely leaves that alone and doesn't want to talk about that. Like, yeah, they yeah. start to, like, DS9 starts to talk about it, which we can get there and kind of move towards the movies and re- wrap it up for the afternoon. But yeah, but DS9 talks about, gives us some class. They give us some quarks. I mean, Rom says, Workers of the World Unite. Marks yes. is fucking the Ferengi herd of Marks. I love eventually. it. I love like, it so much. The Ferengi are why you should watch watch DS9, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Like, yes, DS9 is the Quark show plus everybody else. <laughs> oh, no, it's the Quark and de- the Quark and Garrick Intergalactic Detective Agency spinoff. Oh, my is God. What? Oh, I'm sorry. Did you hear that sound? A gold press latinum falling out of the sky? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, and I think that also ties back in well to sort of wrap it into what we were just talking about as we bring it to a close. It's the same exact thing that made 
Lower Decks work, right? They took this horrible thing that's happening in real life, which is, of course, capitalism, and they pushed it to the point of absurdity and made it hilarious, Mm -hmm. right? And in doing so, they also give some images of like, here's how we can rehabilitate this, right? And so in examining the Ferengi, they were really asking and answering this question of like, what do we do about these people that have bought in, like these true believers in capitalism? What the fuck do we do with them? Incentive-based economics fetishists. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, And I, I think that is great. And I also think a big part of why they got away with it is because they were Jew-coded, which they were. They were extremely Jewish-coded. And this is a really great sort of a is Star Trek racist moment because that shit was anti-Semitic, like flat out. There was a lot of just like very just below the surface anti-Semitism in the Ferengi and also some weird sort of anti-queer shit going on on by making Quark, you know, Quark who's kind of a feat and at one point literally attracted to a trans man, like, and therefore is the clearly gay. It's in the lobes. It's in the lobes, yeah. right? But that's the thing. It's like, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of sort of so queer coding oh, and Jew so coding weird. and weirdness going on there. But at the same time, they clearly wrote him so lovingly that, like, they managed to, at the very least, write a good character with it. And I love him. Well, they actually had two episodes where he, he became a female. Remember, there was that one where he did it as part of uh, Jadzia's ceremony thing where he was became her her yeah, previous yeah. host. So yeah, like they definitely played around with Quark's character a lot in that spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think probably part of that is just because the actor was great. But yeah. um, Armin Shimmerman is the that best. That he could do all that with that dental piece in that he like those those like oh my god yeah gross teeth and he's just like yeah let me act the shit out of this whole scene while you're just standing there staring at my mouth. I know, right? It's like yeah. we have a whole sandwich in there, dude. How are you doing that? He's amazing. Star Trek has had some incredible actors just over the years. Period. I mean, obviously Patrick Stewart's amazing. Brett Spiner is incredible, mm-hmm. unbelievably good actor, and. And, uh, no, Jeffrey Toomes. Yeah, Jeffrey Toomes. And then pretty much the entire cast of Disco, if I'm being honest. There's a lot of just like powerhouse talent in that show. Avery Brooks. Yeah. Oh, man. Sometimes he chews the shit out of that scenery, but it is good, too. It is also great. Like, Yeah, yeah. The one where he's doing the play about having to do the weird assassination thing, but he's just doing it at his log at the camera as the cutaways between the actual filmed segments. Yeah. It's so weird. Like, what are we doing? Like, I mean, I get that we're, like, expressing his anguish and that this will never be part of the official record, and I I hear it, but, oh, wow. Right at the camera, huh? Yeah. That being said, in um, uh, the one where he goes back to the 50s and is this, is the sci-fi writer, is magnificent. That performance is beautiful. That's some of the best Trek, actually. It's, yeah. It's such a beautiful... And then there is the mm-hmm. Bell Riots, of course, one of my favorite episodes. Hell yeah. Come save us, please. Yeah, seriously. Come to this, Benjamin. Um. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, since we're still sort of playing in the 90s, generally, while I was sort of preparing for this, you know, I rewatched basically all of Star Trek. And when I rewatched the shows that came out in the 90s, I realized that like the next generation actually is like my least favorite by a lot. And it seems to me like what they kind of did is they anchored the next generation as the one to make like the execs happy. And then from there, they jumped off and did these really fascinating and interesting and compelling things with Deep Space Nine, which was obviously class analysis and about imperialism and you know the sort of tensions between different power structures when vacuums are created when the imperial core enters or exits an area right uh and also then in voyager really examining female leadership 
and what like female competency could look like or be. And of course, it's still really white centered and failed there in some ways as well. But like, that to me is really where the interesting writing of that time period was happening. Mm. And I figured we were about ready to move and talk about Voyager anyway. So I thought I'd bring it up and segue us a little bit. Well, for everything it does right, there's the way they wrote Chakotay. Oh, God, Chakotay. Oh, boy. That's in it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Sorry, not to not to take a dump in the pool immediately, <laughs> but... No, you're right, though. You're right. Is Voyager racist, comma, yes. and why is the answer yes? <laughs> yeah, it's a very racist show. Um, and I think they were trying, maybe, because there was like a lot of sort of weird fetishism towards Native people in the 90s. And it was where that sort of attitude of like indigenous people as extinct came from. And it's it's very strange to like have grown up in a culture that said like, oh, yeah, there used to be Indians. And it's like, wow, nowadays, like you see what's actively happening to indigenous people who are still here. You know, and it's like, we pretend they don't even exist anymore. And that's kind of wild. So I don't know. In that capacity, I appreciate that they at least tried to say like, no, indigenous people still exist, you know? But remember in in Voyager, it was revealed at one point that the origin of Chakotay's character or or his, his tribe culture came from aliens. So in a way... I mean, that that is total erasure because you're saying that native culture didn't even come from Earth. It, It didn't belong there in the first place. It came from somewhere else. Yeah, well, and I mean, that that sort of weird, like, mysticism and fetishization is really, I think, kind of the perfect encapsulation of, like, liberal progressivism, (laughs) especially of that time period. Yeah. You know, is like, they were very into the idea of the other and into the idea of, like, exalting the other, but without at any point directly interacting with the other. Mm -hmm. You know, without bringing the other in, in a place of, you know, sort of mutual openness. Well, it's Clintonism. Exactly, exactly. It's it's this sort of very strange, deliberate blindness. Well, I would say that this is it, then. This is Star Trek living up to Gene Roddenberry's original intention, which is to take the violence, the the physical violence, out of the Enlightenment thinking and Western sort of liberal or li- liberal capital L thinking, right? Which, but mm-hmm. essentially, which remains racist. We learn later, right? It is not simply yes. the colonial violence that makes those things dangerous. It is the cat this categorization error and very and things like it. Yeah. So they they keep they keep they're living in the spirit of the thing still. And that I mean, but then again, that's why we're here to talk about the show because it is something we love that leads us to a future we want. But if we just let it take us by the hand or just let the idea of technology being magic take us by the hand. We go get there. Come on now, folks. You know, and uh, if there is a way to sort of wrap it all up. Oh, we could have to wait in a second and say Picard is entirely people slapping Jean-Luc Picard right in his French foreskin for being a prick. And that's a fun Yes, ride. yes. But actually, that's exactly where I was going with it. It's funny if you bring it up that way. Oh. Um, yeah, because if we're going to wrap it all up, there is not a better way to do it than Picard. Because this sort of recurring theme we've been talking about this whole episode zero of like, you have to think of Star Trek as a line of succession and a line of progress. And the reason the Picard show exists is because Jean 
Jean-Luc Picard was like everybody's stepdad that they actually liked. You know, they he was the good stepdad of America. And, you know, I think now with Picard, the way they centered him as this sort of relic that people were tired of putting up with is really about, you know, our parents' generation who grew up with the original series, who created the, you know, generations in the 90s, who now sort of are struggling to accept their own mortality and struggling to accept that they're not in charge anymore and they shouldn't be. And trying to process that, even though they weren't really raised with the coping skills to do it, you know? And I I think there's something sort of sad and beautiful and poetic about Picard, which otherwise is not like the best show, really. It's fine. I mean, I would watch John... It feels a little like Firefly. Yeah, it has... Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's getting, it seems like to lead that way. I don't know. Like, Yeah, yeah, and I would watch Patrick Stewart and Jerry Ryan read phone books. Like, I don't care. I love both of them so much that, like, if they're in it, I'm going to watch it. Oh, and the seven of that guy with all with different accents is the bunch of holograms? Yeah, let's go. It's exciting. We're doing it. Yeah. And I, I really don't think I experienced that show the way they meant for me to necessarily, but there was something, I think, kind of wistful about it for me. Because I see a lot of my own father in this show. Mm. You know, of this person that I grew up watching Star Trek with, who, you know, introduced me to so many of his moral and ethical ideas through this show. Who also now, at this point, like, he's the one who needs some remedial education and how to not be racist, right? And like, he is starting to, as culture changes around him, struggle to keep up. And frankly, like, sometimes he's kind of a dickhead. Uh, and it's, it's because he was raised to be this kind of person. And now the world is saying, we need you to be different. Like we made you this, but now we need to make you into something else. And I think there's sort of an existential crisis there to realize that if you want to push through, you have to be able to really accept that who you are was not necessarily entirely a choice. That you were yourself a product of times. Right. That times change and that in order to keep up with the times, there's an extent to which you have to relinquish yourself to this sort of collective knowledge of humanity and trust other people and follow other people's lead, you know, and that all is very, you know, anathema to the patriarchal traditions in which people Patrick Stewart's age and our parents' age were raised with. But I do think that's one of the things that Trek does consistently well is that it's full of these moments where this person existing in this ideal future society bumps up against a situation that doesn't fit neatly into their paradigm and suddenly they have to question what they thought was right or they have to examine their motives and then they learn something through it. We see a lot of those moments through Picard's eyes in in The Next Generation. We see a number of them with Janeway. Uh, Certainly Cisco grapples with that a lot in Deep Space Nine, I think, and there's lots of them in Discovery. So I think that that kind of examination and self-reflection is a consistent arc through Trek that makes me really appreciate the show. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think in a meaningful way, Picard is Star Trek looking back at itself. Yeah. Which is very, I mean, it's, you know, they're leaning into the absurdity and just creating a simulacrum and I'm here for it, to be clear. I love this and I love deconstruction as such. But I do think, you know, there's there's something kind of bittersweet to it as well because that is them saying, we're retiring this, you know? And it's like, yeah. oh man, like, that's my dad. But yeah, he do gotta go though, you know? <laughs> yeah, but J- and Jerry Ryan, Jerry Ryan linking up to that cube that is such a, a beautiful wonderful thing like oh sexy borg auntie <laughs> no that's not even sexy borg auntie that's like hot big sister that's like big sister's hot friend 
for me. Boom. There you go. That's, yeah, thank you. My, That's my big sister's hot friend. Or my friend's hot big sister. You know what I mean? Like, not my sister, but somebody's in there that it's, I only know because I'm friends with the younger sibling. I'm not trying to do... I quit. Look, it's everybody knows that long the Seven episode. of Nine is a wonderful, wonderful character. That She's a lesbian entirely icon, cast. is what I'm saying. <laughs> but, like, actually... Like, that's not actually, like, a joke either. Seven of Nine is, like, actually kind of a lesbian icon. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, she's a fucking she. Well, she's me. Hi, I'm the guy that always relates to the Vulcan or the android. So yeah, hey, look, the emotionless one. Uh huh. Well, I was actually I thinking, it. oh, because you, you're neurodivergent, which is why I always relate to them. It's like, oh, because my brain I, was built wrong. Well, it's same, same, but different. You're getting the, you, it's the same nail with different hammer or something to that effect. My metaphors are falling apart. You're right. The uh, shield integrity's low. Let's wander out of here talking shit about these movies for a second, and then we'll go get yes. some synthahol and pack it in. So the TOS ones are awful. They are in so much of a shambles. Wrath of Khan is one of the best things that's ever happened to motion picture, and I will die on this hill. <laughs> I mean, we will have a special about the motion picture, the original. It's a Christmas movie. We'll talk about that at length. The second movie, Wrath of Khan, is just too long of an episode that happens entirely because of a fucking clerical error. Just count the planets. You're like, oh shit, this is that solar system where we dropped off those super soldiers and abandoned them. Let's count the planets and make sure that we go to the right one before we all get brain slugged. Problem solved. Boom. Movie doesn't happen. And then you don't have to do the Easter movie, Search for Spock. Yep. I'm not sorry. I love them. And then we go to and then we go to 1986 and get a whale with a time travel slingshot. Yeah, I I'm got not sorry. I got I got nothing to and say. And then about Kirk's the movie. and then Kirk five Kirk's brother fights God. He steals the Enterprise to go fight God. It's great. And it's then they just sort of they sort of trail off. Uh the, the the TNG ones, they do the grandfather paradox and everyone goes to help create warp travel. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Uh, sure. yeah, they fight the Borg some, they find out that there's some section thirty one weirdness and like, oh golly, what if the what if the Federation's not always the good guy? And then the Kelvin timeline happens, which is just all garbage. That's uh, those movies aren't tracked because the they're action movies right if you put them in any other environment they are that uh there yes. is not the solution is not to find out why our ignorance is the problem the solution is to kill the bad guy and yes. that is Absolutely. ultimately not a trek that is why they're not like yeah i mean and i yeah, know this yeah. is hack of the cliche at this point because being mad at jj abrams for ruining your childhood is now something that so many people have done that it need not be mentioned J.J. Abrams makes J.J. Abrams movies that he has convinced a bunch of suits to let him put in a different suit. But it's like a J.J. Abrams movie is just that. He makes the same movie with everything he touches and the only thing that changes is like the aesthetic in which he, you know, presents it. But that's it. It's strictly aesthetic differences. None of it is materially or substantively different. And that's why his movies are trash. Thank you. <laughs> and the only thing not trash about the Kelvin timeline is they managed to get Leonard Nimoy into it. Otherwise, pfft, let's move on. Yes, they also managed to somehow undo the Vulcans. And that's unacceptable to me because we are one and the same. All Vulcans are Jews and members of the tribe. Thank you again. I'm just <laughs> dropping my mic. I'm doing like a series of mic drops to end out the episode. Yeah, I got uh, I got nothing. Very well. Um, hot takes like Vulcans are Jewish, which is not exactly a hot take because openly like Nimoy brought in plenty of Jewish things and like just did them as improv improvisation. Like, well, on behalf of Spoonheads everywhere, <laughs> I'm very sorry. <laughs>
Well, uh, no, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate y'all getting together with me to talk about this. I appreciate you listeners for listening to this. If paywalled and then later released bonus content of episode zero, because it's probably way too long to send out just to people at this point. But I look forward to fruitful discussions on the topic in the future. Yeah. Oh, heck yeah. Fired up. Good stuff. We'll probably release it all at once, honestly. So or we'll release it with with the first episode, maybe. I don't know. If you're here, it means you probably decided you like us. And that's great <laughs> and we like you too and thank you as always whether it's on not safer wonks or pictures of my improbably beautiful butt on twitter uh, for being here with me and inexplicably reinforcing my attention seeking and of course that was rachel i'm paul byron you can find me on twitter at, at hashtag subtext or on where earth's favorite teen superhero body horror narrative play anti-fascist comedy podcast critical bits criticalbitcast.com nice that's impressive that i think it's cool when i rattle off our patreon which by the way is patreon.com slash natsafe and i'm Corey archibald you can find me on twitter at cm archibald that's me and of course, I am still, I am still Rachel, and this is a Not Safe Media presentation. We are in the Not Safe Media Cooperative. If you are a podcaster and you are interested in joining the cooperative and you have at least 10 episodes released, you can reach me at Twitter. Uh, it's at ReachRachelCon or NSFWonks, which is where the rest of our stuff happens. Or you can go to NotSafeMedia.com and give us money pretty much any of those places, actually. Uh, and we love you. Or just drop cash on the front door. It's fine. Um, no, don't come to my home. Don't come to our homes. Do not come to our homes. Let me be clear. Never, never come to my house. I got that information scrubbed off the internet for a reason. Uh, and if you look it up yourself, you're a psychopath. So don't do that. This show has a Twitter account. You can follow that. Yes, you can follow the show itself uh, at Gay Space Cast, I believe. Is that what it is? Gay Space Cast? Yep. On Twitter. And we love you. We are a co-op again. So this is... A horizontal organization. It's cool. It's good. Not safe media rocks. Uh, and is a really, really big amplifier that we are using to try and further the leftist cause, which includes propaganda about Star Trek. So <laughs> I'm here for it. Okay, we'll see you guys next week. You have a, a yes. very long paper to write because, of course, it's Star Trek and you did something. <laughs> mm-hmm. We sure did. That's right. And with that, uh, live long and prosper, folks. Space the rich. <laughs> bye bye. That's me being Brandon. <laughs>